Welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. Today's show is an Autism Awareness Week special, and I'm delighted to say that joining me today, we have Chris Nifton from De Montfort University. Chris is an Associate Professor of Learning and Teaching with a specific focus on dementia studies and cognitive care. Chris is also an Admiral Nurse, specialising in dementia care, as well as being a registered learning disability nurse and social worker. Chris is the co-chair of the Higher Education Dementia Network, co-editor for the Journal of Cognitive Care, and is also a senior fellow of Advance HE. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Great to have you on, Chris. We've got you on today to talk about autism awareness, but specifically autism awareness in relation to supporting autistic learners in higher education. Sure. So I guess the best place to start is with a straightforward but quite broad question. What is autism and how does autism affect learning? Lovely. Thank you, Kevin. Um, you're right with it being quite a broad question because that's exactly what it is. Um, we now talk about autism as part of a spectrum. So you might see the abbreviation ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. So it covers a whole um, range, I guess, of people's abilities as well as disabilities within that spectrum. So on one end of the scale, we can have people who are quite severely affected by the autism. It becomes quite disabling. And for some people, that can also create various learning disabilities. On the other end of the spectrum, we can have people who are probably mildly affected, but it still affects their ability to manage some activities of daily living and social interaction and some social skills. And then also we have within this whole, I guess, spectrum process, um, people who may have limited um, IQ and also people with a higher IQ. Now, the whole IQ bit is in itself a minefield about how we actually define someone's IQ. But essentially, we, we tend to see on one end of the spectrum people who may have something called hypercognitive autism, where their IQ isn't affected, but their ability to think is actually quite different. Um, atten- Essentially, the, the speed of processing is, is quite fast, that boredom can settle in very, very easily. And sometimes if you make things overly accessible, uh, the student can get quite um, bored, uh, disinterested and wanting to move on at a faster pace. But more on that in a minute. All I'm trying to do explain really is there's no one such thing as autism. We have this spectrum. And, and some of the listeners out there may have heard of the condition called Asperger's or Asperger's syndrome. Now, we we tend to no longer use that term. Um, Asperger's is a form of autism. And now we've got this autism spectrum disorder, ASD title. It fits within there. So when you hear people talking about Asperger's, it's part of ASD. Um, If prior to, roughly speaking, 2013, you were given the Asperger's diagnostic term, people tend to keep it. But what's happened is since 2013, you're less likely to have that and and rather have um, ASD. And um, what I'm happy to share with the audience is I I have my own diagnosis of autism. um, And what would have been called Asperger's um, is is now for me called hypercognitive autism. So that's that's where I fit. So quite a broad thing, really. Absolutely right there, Kevin. Um, in terms of what it actually means, there, there are three main segments. The first one is people with autism get that diagnosis um, due to behaviours and interactions and various abilities and cognitive skills that they had difficulties with before they were 18 years of age. It's part of what we call a neurocognitive developmental disorder. And when we look at cognitive care and cognitive disorders overall, we have um, uh, neurocognitive generally and neurodevelopmental. The neurodevelopmental ones are the ones that we tend to have before we reach adulthood. And and autism fits in that place. Now, it doesn't mean as an adult you can't have autism if you didn't have a diagnosis. What would happen is they will discuss with you your behaviours, your traits, your thinking patterns, etc. when you were a child because that's when it sets in. And actually quite a few people are now um, coming forward, particularly some of our students who are struggling. And and when we ask them, um, 
or what the person who's doing the assessment asks them, tell me a bit about your childhood. That's what they're getting at. Um, you need to have had the symptoms before you were 18 years of age. Um, now, the, the three key areas, and they're a bit of a mix, really. You don't have to have all of them, but what we tend to find is these are the three dominant areas. The first one is communication. Um, commun communication skills, communication difficulties. Um, and that can range from um, generally interpreting what's happening in front of them. So, for example, I'm looking at you now, Kevin, and I'm watching on a computer screen, which I find really difficult because I, I, I struggle with interpreting a flat screened image rather than someone face to face. Um, equally, it's understanding things like um, tone of voice. So if you speak to me in a certain tone, would I understand that you're trying to portray anger or compassion or, or, or support? I, the peop I people with autism may struggle in understanding things like that. So there's a whole range of different communication problems people may experience. Um, a big one I have is word finding difficulties. So I can do a lecture and I'm quite fluent in what I'm talking about, my particular areas. And all of a sudden, I cannot think of the most basic word that I need to complete my sentence. And I'll say to my students, I don't know what word I need to use here. Let me just talk around it and you tell me what word I need because I'm quite open about it. So key word finding difficulties that may make the person feel stupid, but actually it can be quite common. And you're not being stupid because you can do things that perhaps other people can't do. But don't worry if there's word finding difficulties. Anyway, the list goes on. So much more we could talk about, but I'm conscious of time. The next bit is social interaction problems. Um, and that's the ability to relate to people on this one-to-one. -one. So basic social communication, um, interpreting someone's body language, verbal, non-verbal, how you orientate in social situations, how you communicate with, with people. And it's quite interesting because the whole world is full of um, a whole range of unwritten rules. And if you have autism, you're not quite sure what these unwritten rules actually are. And that's why the world can seem very difficult, um, sometimes quite frightening, and sometimes you're made to feel awkward because you don't take what other people take for granted. You really have to stop and process and understand it. And then the third element we call stereotypical behaviours. And stereotypical behaviours can range from having a fixation on a particular project or idea. Um, it can also become um, something that you do to um, I guess, if I give you an example, that's probably easier. I sit there and I tap like this, if you can hear that, but I, I tap quite a bit or I shake my leg. Other people have something in their hand that they keep playing with, etc. Because it, we, it's almost trying to establish a, a, a sensory process within themselves, but also a distraction from the outside world. Um, coupled to this would become an obsession then with clear routines. Now, with routine, routines are great um, because it, it, it keeps us um, focused and situated in the present. If we say our social skill deficit is not understanding or knowing the unwritten rules, a routine will give us that structure and that safety. And that's why many people um, on the spectrum really like a routine and don't like change because it's the one thing that perhaps keeps them safe in what otherwise could be a, a socially awkward or frightening world. So that's it roughly in a nutshell. That was absolutely fascinating, Chris. I mean, I think anybody listening to this will have learned tons just from the answer to that question. It's probably one of the best answers to any question that I've ever asked on this podcast. Um, what I want to kind of dig, dig into now is kind of how noticeable, I guess, that, that autism might be. So would autism be noticeable in a learner from a teacher's perspective? So we often talk about hidden disabilities. I mean, is, is autism a hidden disability in that respect? 100% yes. And, and as part of being a hidden disability, it, it falls within the Equality Act um, 2010. And certainly at most HEIs and certainly here at DMU, it will fall within the, the, the catchment area of support available to students um, and to lecturers that, that we provide and other institutions would provide, because it falls within that, that overarching umbrella term of disability. Um, the other thing um, that we need to think about in, in terms of being a hidden disability is 
do people want it hidden or are people quite open about it? Um, so whether it's noticeable or not, it, it becomes a tricky thing, really, because if it's not noticeable, um, it, it, is the person actually deliberately trying to hide it because they're embarrassed by it? Um, so I, I guess one of the ethical issues should be, is it a hidden disability? Yes, it is. How do I notice it? I guess we should accompany that question with, should I be noticing it? Or is it rude to try and notice it? Um, should I wait until a student declares it? Should I wait until a student says, I'm finding difficulties with this, what can I do to help? Before we start making any assumptions, because that's always a tricky uh, position there, making assumptions about people's um, met or unmet additional learning needs or disability. Um, I guess it's quite, it's not easy to spot at all, but you can see people who may be presenting with what you could argue autistic traits. So autistic traits are some of the behaviours or mannerisms you might expect to see in someone with a diagnosis, but they're not significant enough to affect big parts of their daily life. And as such, they're unlikely to get a full diagnosis. So they won't have autism, but they may present with some autistic traits. And it's quite interesting on that sense, because what, what I find personally um, I guess it makes me feel angry, but not everybody would feel the same way, is when people say, well, we're all on a spectrum somewhere. And I go, well, yes, we are. But if you really had autism to the degree that many people have got it with a label, then does that actually play down the severity of the, the experience that we find ourselves in? We're all on a spectrum for everything. We're all on a spectrum for mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, um, etc. So I, I really dislike it personally, and I know other people have a different opinions when people say we're all on the spectrum, because I've got a diagnosis for a reason, because I have difficulties with it um, specifically, um, etc. Now, um, what we used to talk about, what not we, what the clinical healthcare professionals used to talk about in the past was particularly autism affecting boys and men. Um, and there used to be, and this is a very, very long time ago, a presumption that it didn't really affect females. And of course it does. It's just sometimes hard to spot in, in females. And there's a whole range of academic discussions to why that's the case. And it could be because um, um, women and girls are more likely to hide some of the symptoms or we're less likely to be questioning those or, or asking questions about what we consider to be um, normal social skills that we expect a boy to be presenting with as opposed to a girl presenting with. So it all gets mixed up in a whole range of gender bias uh, and politics and um, overshadowing of various aspects, which I won't go into today. But I do need to make it clear that um, whether you are either gender or whichever gender, even non-binary genders, whatever we're looking at in terms of gender, anyone can be affected it's just currently more commonly noticed in boys, and that's why there's a huge influx. I think now we've become more gender aware, we'll see more females also getting a diagnosis too. But commonly, I guess, in, in a classroom setting, if you, are, if you are teaching, and if there is a student who may um, have autism, then you may find odd little bits in terms of sensory issues coming up. Um, when you when you make the very awkward announcement for us as autistic learners, uh, when you say, OK, now for some group work, can you get into pairs or groups of twos or threes? And you see the, I don't want to be doing this. Or suddenly the lecturer will say, right, let's do some role play. So when you suddenly introduce an activity that involves direct collaboration, um, often without any warning, um, then that can cause distress or anxiety. So what you then would see is not autistic signs, but rather you'd be seeing signs of anxiety because of the learning mode that you're presenting your students with. Um, the other thing I didn't talk about before in terms of some of the symptoms, um, which could have a big impact here, is sensory. So you can see behind me, this is my office. It's actually quite dark, but I've got a nice window because the people that gave me an office know I have autism and they know I hate light, so I have a nice window. It also means, and you can see here, I've got a desk lamp and everyone who shares this office has a desk lamp because I don't have the lights on. 
because my particular autism creates um, sensory hypersensitivity. And that relates to artificial lighting and noises. So bringing that back to the student experience in the classroom setting, if you are, uh, for example, in clinical skills, I, I teach nurses, I teach paramedics, and some of our clinical skills rooms are really brightly lit with the long um, fluorescent lights, etc. That can be overstimulating and be quite problematic for some students. Um, if you go into a room and some of our classrooms can get quite hot or quite cold, etc. Sensory also includes people's experience of temperatures. Um, my own autism means I don't know what temperature I'm actually experiencing. I just know my temperature doesn't feel right. So I've got to go through an experience of let me take my jumper off, let me put it on. Which felt better? Oh, okay, I was cold or I was hot. It doesn't automatically register if I'm hot or cold. It just registers my temperature isn't right. So with that becomes a hypersensitivity to temperature regulation. So again, in a classroom setting, it might be, oh, it's a hot day, but it's OK, we can get by. But again, you see a student who's um, showing, again, signs of anxiety because the temperature isn't quite right. They may not realise it's a temperature issue. They just feel, I don't feel right. I don't feel settled right now in this classroom. And it could be purely down to um, sensory issues including the good old ticking clock. Um, there are things that you and I, um, well, not you and I, people that um, the general population may take for granted. So you have a clock ticking in the background. Very quickly, you can shut it out and, and, and focus on, on the task at hand. Um, some people with autism find that really difficult, and the slightest tick, 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 or the slightest tap can be hugely problematic. And then this also relates to not only what clock have you got in the room, but also the other students. So it, it's a funny old thing with lectures. We want the students to enjoy their experience of teaching. And sometimes we are a little bit flexible in allowing the students to have a little chat to the person next to them in the hope they're discussing what we've just said, etc. But it's really important that the lecturer keeps on top of this because sometimes those little whispering chats can be hugely distracting if you've got hypersensory um, difficulties, because suddenly all your brain focuses on is that, that whisper in the background. Now, lots of things I've said for the people who don't have autism would be thinking, oh, that affects me too. And that's why we say the spectrum. But if you have autism, it affects you to the point where it's not just, well, that's annoying. It's actually really anxiety provoking, where there's a point you need to say, if that doesn't stop, I need to leave the room. You need to do something about this. But people may feel anxious about bringing it out aloud. So those are the, some of the um, key things, I guess, you could see amongst your student group. Again, that was absolutely fascinating. And I was I was going to sort of ask what the main challenges were that an autistic learner might face. But you've covered many of them there. And I'm going to ask you a little bit later about you know, what we can do as teachers to perhaps mitigate against some of those challenges. So we'll, sure. we'll come to that. What, what I wanted to come on to next, Chris, was the kind of prevalence of other um, other challenges that, that autistic learners might face. So are other challenges such as anxiety, mental health and well-being challenges or other forms of learning differences like dyslexia more common among autistic learners? Yes. And there, there's two reasons for this. So it all comes under the umbrella term neurodiversity. And sometimes when you're getting the diagnosis, and this goes down to the political arena of how we diagnose and what we say when we get a diagnosis, there may be some confusion or overlap between symptoms and, and how people present themselves. So people may come out um, with an array of different labels, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, because it's not quite clear which one you fit under. Um, so sometimes the, the labelling um, do you really have that or is it just difficult to tease out which one you have? So if we're going to go down the political argument, there is that overdiagnosis of different conditions because it's, you don't, you're not presenting in a clear enough fashion. However, what we do know is the majority of people with autism will also present with dyspraxia. And, and that can cause its own issues. Um, particularly in a classroom situation if you're doing tasks etc 
and some people with quite um, debilitating dyspraxia may even find difficulties in trying to find their way to a, a desk or a seating position uh, within a classroom and negotiating tables and chairs. Again, we take it for granted, but they can actually find that quite confusing sometimes. Um, so it, it does depend what you're teaching, I guess. But this awareness of dyspraxia is very, very common in people with autism. And what's often underestimated in dyspraxia is it's not just these gross motor movements like walking and um, left and right and directional issues um, that can also be translated to fine motor skills, which includes dexterity and using a pen and using a computer. So if you have autism and all here have this computer and you're writing things down, well, actually, that can cause its own problems as well. So 100 percent be mindful that dyspraxia can often occur very uh, it, in collaboration with autism quite quickly. The other thing we see quite often is auto, um, in autism is anxiety and depression. Now, interestingly, from a if I put my mental health hat on, um, anxiety and depression are two separate conditions but have so much in common. So again, sometimes it's quite hard to separate the two. Um, but certainly with, with anxiety, what we tend to have, as well as the uh, the mental health feelings of, of fear and wanting to avoid and anxiety provoking situations is the accompanying physical health problems. Because if you have anxiety, not only do you feel it inside, you also experience some of the physical symptoms like sweating and a fast pulse rating, a little bit of confusion, uh, etc. So having that on top of autism can also be quite debilitating too. So anxiety, the autism can create anxiety but to have an anxiety disorder on top of the autism isn't uncommon, and then the two together can be very overwhelming. Um, and then depression is quite common. It's um, If I go back to my old nursing days when we looked at, um, I don't think we use the terms anymore now, but I, I use them because they're pretty explorate, uh, explanatory. Um, endogenous depression and reactive depression. Endogenous depression is when you are depressed down to, purely down to, let's say, neurochemical imbalance in the brain. Reactive depression is when you're depressed because re you're reacting to something that's causing a low mood. Now, it's hard to say whether in autism you have endogenous, you're more likely to get it at a the biopsychological basis, or are you more likely to get depression because you're reacting to how you're being treated, how people treat you, how you judge your experiences around you, or is it a, a mixture of both? So um, what I would say is the autism reduces your ability to, I guess, buffer the effects, your, your resilience levels. So having autism and then possibly dyspraxia and then anxiety and this overwhelming situation, your resilience is going to be weakened quite a bit, which makes you more prone to reacting in a depressive way to the things that are happening around you, if that helps. Fantastic answer. I think um, that really did outline the kind of synergy between different challenges that an autistic learner may face, um, you know, aside from just being autistic. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it leads quite nicely into the next question, really. So, you know, bearing everything in mind that we've spoken about, the challenges that autistic learners face, I mean, what sort of things should we be doing as teachers to plan for learners with autism? Ah, now, I made a couple of notes based on my experience um, in teaching students, which I thought this this is cool. So this is this is quite personal to me in, in that sense, because as well as being a, um, a lecturer here, I've also been a student here and students in different places. So knowing I was coming to do this talk, I, I, I just jotted down a few points because I didn't want to forget any. So this this could affect other people, um, but it definitely affected me. Um, so the first bit I've wrote down, which is quite a nice bit really, is people talk about, and often it is for the purpose of getting DSA and stuff, autism as a disability. Let's talk about when autism can be an ability. So when I announce to my students, just because I have word-finding difficulties and I'm so random and I go off on targets, I tell students I have a, an autism diagnosis. So these things are going to find difficult when I'm teaching you, these things I'm not. How does that make you feel, students? So they're aware right from the start, and that, that's, that's quite great. But what I also say is these are the things I can do well. So I'm highlighting 
that autism may make things difficult, but some things are wonderful. So what when you're supporting a student who identifies as an autistic student, and I may come and see the end of the class and say, I have autism, etc., then rather than say, you can say, what can I do to help? Because they'll then they're an expert of their own condition. Um, what because we know they're going to be affected by anxiety and depression as well potentially let's not label them but potentially um what we can do as a as teaching staff is to put them on the right process of positive mental health by saying okay well what can you do well tell, tell me some of the things you found that you can do so we're helping the student to refocus not on the disabling aspects of autism but on the enabling and ability aspects of autism. Um, when I talk to kids, um, I, I would tell them your autism is a bit like a gift, a superpower. So let's work out what your superpowers are. Now, I wouldn't say that to an adult learner because it could sound a bit patronising, but it's that process. What can you do? And when we think about some of the traits of autism, there are some huge potential abilities that could be quite wel welcoming, such as a very clear focus, attention to detail, um, not getting distracted by things around you so you can get a piece of work done and completed on time. The ability to clearly follow rules like learning outcomes and assessment guidelines um, to the letter um, and then saying, well, that's great, because look, we say we want, um, for example, 12 font, one and a half line, line spacing, etc. Uh, and that's going to give you so many points. Great. That's something they can do really well because they, they they may be able to focus much easier on, on clear directional stuff, etc. Um, so I guess the first starting point is having that, that positive welcome to the student who says to you, I've got autism. I just want to let you know, rather than saying, oh, that must be really difficult. What can't you do? You start by saying, OK, what is it you find you can do really well? Is there anything you find that you have um, um, a particular um, that you enjoy doing that we can see if we can facilitate within the lectures? So you start off on the positive. You don't start off on the negative. Um, the next bit I've, I've put down here is extra support in personal tutor sessions. Um, and what I mean by this is ensuring that the personal tutor, the go to person, has enough autism awareness to provide that support because the personal tutor then becomes that safe person, that link that they can go to. And um, I, I, I don't know, but it's ensuring that when we do personal tutor briefings and sessions, that part of that discussion or talk, there is a section about um, how to support a student who identifies as, as having autism because they're going to come to you if they feel you're a safe person to go to. And, and that's what we need, because in, in a whole flux of situations where timetables are changing and courses are changing, module leaders are changing, etc., to have that one person of consistency who we can say, can I just chat about how my course is going? And then that personal tutor ideally should be the conduit in, in liaising with a whole range of different people like module leaders, etc., and that way, the, the, the student doesn't have to tell their story over and over and over again. They can go to the personal tutor and say, these are the things I'm finding difficult. Um, I didn't know I would, but I'm new to HEI. Um, this is the issue. Can I talk to you about it? You have that discussion and the personal tutor can say, that's great. Um, do I have your permission to contact the module leaders to see what they can do on their Blackboard shell that's a little bit different, for example? So they've got that safe conduit to go to. And sometimes it's just a safe space to go and say, I'm finding it really, really difficult. Am I normal? Um, and that's a big issue because people don't, they're, they're treated so abnormal out there. HEI could be the safe place for them, but sometimes it's not. And a person due to say, look, there's no such thing as normal. I'm as normal as you are. What is it you're finding difficult? Let's see what we can do to help. And then always at the end, reframe it back to say, OK, well, that sound, you're, you're picking it up really well. So what what things can you almost give back, as, as it were, which then leads on to um, how we can support students is being very well aware of the teaching that the teaching mode we're expecting students to participate in and um, how we prepare the student for that. So 
if we are doing something like an, an oral presentation. Now, as a student, that can be very terrifying because um, I love doing it. It's one of the things I do do well, um, but only when I'm in my um, role as a lecturer. If I wasn't a lecturer and I was outside, I struggle to, to telephone people. I won't answer my phone because I struggle to even communicate on the phone. But say, Chris, it's a student or it's a lecturer, very different world, because I know what the rules are. I know what they're expecting of me and I know how to perform as a lecturer. But as a as a person out there in the world who isn't a lecturer, I ain't got a clue. So I, I shut down. So if you're suddenly saying to a student, we're doing an oral presentation about A, B or C, I think your first question should be, why? Is it really essential? Because if I have an autistic student, they are likely to have um, problems with presenting to other people. Um, how are you marking that presentation, for example? Are you using direct eye contact? Uh, and if you are, people for some would find that really difficult. So I'm looking at the screen now, for example, and I can see Kevin's cheeky face looking at me. But what's great is I can't see Kevin's eyes because I've took my glasses off. So that's how I adapt to it. I'll, I'll deliberately increase a disability to reduce the impact of another disability. So I, I've got um, visual difficulties. I wear glasses. But if I to engage with someone, so they would think I'm giving them eye contact, I take my glasses off. I can't see their eyes at all. But they think they've got eye contact, so that box is ticked. Because I've learned that's one way of, of getting round, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing that could happen in a normal presentation is things like tone of voice. Some people with autism may have quite a monotone tone of voice. Um, the, the pitch isn't always as we would expect it to be. Or they would talk really fast or really slow. Um, now, if those are points when you're marking someone's presentation, you've already put someone with autism at a distinct disadvantage. So the element here is, should we be doing oral presentations? And if we are, can I justify it? Because by doing so, I know I'm putting a whole group of students at a direct disadvantage. And for some courses, we would be doing that. So I teach um, social workers, nurses, paramedics, and these are all vocational subjects which involve interacting with the general public and other professionals. So if a student comes to me and says, I have autism, I'm going to find that really difficult. My conversation with that student is actually to talk about fitness to practice. And you may have a disability um, of autism and you may find that difficult, but to perform the role you want to perform when you qualify, it would require this level of interaction. So how can I help you reach the standard that's expected? Which is very different from, say, doing an oral presentation on a different degree course where there's no occupational standards, where you may be able to say, OK, well, rather than doing a 20 minute oral presentation where you're marked on eye contact, tone of voice, um, etc. Instead, your set task <coughs> is, is to do a, a 2000 word reflection on a, B, C or D. So we're accommodating the students individual learning need and ability, but only where the course allows that to happen. So I think fitness for practice for occupational standards, particularly in the health and life sciences, is something we we need to think about. So there's no one blanket statement. So it's having that overall um, awareness. Um, the other bits I'll put down is awareness of depression, and anxiety. Uh, as a potential concern. Um, oh yes, when you're meeting with students, particularly as a personal tutor or doing tutorials, try to make sure that the environment you're meeting in is as free from distraction as possible. So again, that, that cheeky ticking clock that I've used as an example. I was once in a meeting um, and actually it was part of my, I called it an update, my updated autistic assessment when I was here lecturing. Um, and as I was having the, the reassessment, all I could hear was this ticking clock. And I had to say to the person, uh, I said, um, I can't concentrate because of that bloody clock. So if you wouldn't mind, can you move the clock or switch it off? Because right now that's all I can hear. Um, so if you're having a one-to-one -one and, and a, particularly for students feeling quite worried or concerned or anxious, just have a look at your office environment where you're meeting them. Is there a clock in the way? What's the lighting like? Is it strip lighting? 
have you chatted to them before about what their sensory needs or processes um, are so you can make it as supportive as you can uh, yes yeah, so the environment free from visual and auditory distractions um, um, I think is key and often underestimated and we can relate that again also to the teaching environment so when we are teaching a student um, do we and I appreciate we don't always have time but ideally can we get to the classroom in advance can we see what we can do to make the classroom more receptive to students needs um, what would be great and I don't think we have this here yet but it would be great to do um, um, I'm going to make this up an autism impact assessment uh, we have equality impact assessments what about a specific autism one where if we know we have a large number of students um, with autism are there specific classrooms and teaching spaces within this university that are actually more autistic friendly than other classrooms for example um, and I, I won't say out aloud because I know this podcast could be used elsewhere but there's a certain building which is so not autistic friendly and another building that is but as a lecturer you randomly get assigned a room so if I know I've got autistic students who are particularly have hypersensory um, difficulties then is there a process of requesting the another room but then do are we made aware so actually having a process in place where we have where we can check out rooms in terms of lighting distractions being near a main road uh, there's a building which I'm currently in where it can get really really warm so you open the windows but when you open the windows we're quite close to an A&E department so there's always ambulances going up and down so then you've got the, the noise distractions you close the windows it becomes too hot you've then got the temperature regulation regulation factors but um, a room somewhere else on campus would have been ideal and had a much more positive effect on the students learning uh, the other bits i've got oh yes yes a, a, a bit that used to get me quite often um if you're very clear about the directions and um the re reduce the impact of ambiguity um because often when people with autism will take a word for granted and I, and I always remember uh, two things cropped to mind when I was a student the first was when I was doing a master's uh, ironically in um, international and global EU politics um, and we're having this very interesting talk and we, we had this article pass around and we discussed it and I was getting it it was all really good until there's this one sentence and it said um, something about blah 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 turf wars and of course this was about global politics it was about countries um, against other countries in terms of some sort of um, um, interaction but all I could read was turf wars and all I could think of was turfing the ground and rolls of grass and turf and why is that a problem between two countries and and suddenly you know it's being illogical but all I could think of is why see two countries arguing over grass and that wasn't the case but your minds go straight to the obvious and it, you really need help in pulling it apart and I felt really stupid asking this this professor in EU politics to explain the term turf wars to me everything else I could get even the complexity issues got really quickly but so distracted by this one term turf wars stopped my whole learning for the whole of the two-hour session so we have to be aware of that, the expressions that we use. Um, and another time was when I was a doctorate student. Um, and I was told, I was having my viva, and part of it was, I was asked, now defend what you mean by this. And I thought, well, I know what I, mean, I know by the word defense. So I stood up and I really argued. And I was told, you can sit down, you don't have to be aggressive. So not being aggressive, I'm defending. You asked me to defend it, I'll defend it. Now, luckily for me, I had in the, in the university where I got it from, an autistic chair who the university kindly assigned because they knew I could misinterpret things, who then stopped and said, no, when we say defend, this is what we mean. When, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Let me explain a bit more detail. So just check the directions you're giving to your students, including what you've written in your module guides, uh, reduce any potential ambiguity. And that the directions we give are very clear and very straightforward. 
So almost doing this autistic impact assessment, let's let's give your module guide to someone who doesn't know anything about the university. And if they read it, is it very clear or could they come up with something quite different, if, if that makes sense? Uh, yeah, so just for here, be clear on what you are asking students to do uh, and what you're expecting from them and avoid ambiguous expressions. And I guess the other bit is change. Um, if you're going to change rooms, if you're going to have a lecture, lecturer change, if you're going to change the ordering of what's in the timetable, we, we know practically sometimes you have no, um, you can't control that at all. You don't know. As lecturers, we suddenly get a change upon us the night before. But where at all possible, please put something in place so the students know well in advance. And if you have done a change, it's not a question of, oh, well, it's, it's beyond our control. These things happen. It's about understanding the student's experience is now going to be totally affected by that one change. So after the session, are you going to make a special point to contact the student to invite them back to your office to have a chat to them, knowing their experience is going to be severely affected by that random change? And they may say yes, they may say no, but at least what you're doing is you, you are considering it from that perspective. Everything that you said in the answer to that question, Chris, really resonated with me because I think a lot of it reflects what we would know to be good universally designed practice. So the autism impact assessment, you know, I liken that to just understanding your learners and understanding their needs. And mm -hmm. I talk a lot to staff across the university about the importance of, of knowing about the needs, preferences and barriers uh, that the learners that you're teaching may face. And I, I found that really did resonate with me strongly. I think the other thing I really liked about that was this how you began the answer to that question around sort of, you know, what can you do rather than what can't you do? Because, again, one of the, the key facets of universal design for learning, which is obviously a big area of interest for me is, well, everybody will have a different pathway to achieving mastery over their learning. And it's about supporting learners to work out what that pathway is for them. So for some listening to lectures and reading lots of journals and taking exams works fine. But for others, it won't work so well. And it's about helping them identify what will work well for them. And I think everything that you said there really does resonate with that. I mean, we've got about 10 minutes and I've got mm -hmm. a couple more questions to ask. Sure. The next one, you've probably covered some aspects, but we'll flesh it out in as much detail as we can. What do we often get wrong from a teaching perspective about supporting autistic learners? Um, interesting is sometimes it's UDL. Because in, in, in a positive sense, um, I would argue from my perspective that a universal design for learning may not always take into account some of the unique difficulties that the student may experience. Because a universal design for learning applies a generalistic principle to what works best based on people's needs, um, which is lovely. Um, and I, I remember being in a particular session where UDL was used really well. And this, this was when I was a member of staff and we we're giving pieces of paper and case studies, etc. And it was all done great. The, the case studies were presented on different coloured background papers, which were super different font sizes. We we're on our groups in, in, in the tables, etc. Um, so UDL was being followed. But for my particular hypercognitive autism, it didn't work because by following what would work really well for someone who had reduced processing needs, um, who had dyslexia, who had dyspraxia, who had all sorts of other things, the session was at a really good pace. It was supporting them, plenty of opportunity to discuss. Here's a question. Now let's think about it. Process what answer you want to do. And now let's construct things together. Really great. With my hypercognitive autism, I'd looked at this case study and I thought, yeah, I've got the answer now. And I looked around at this group of students I was sitting with and they were still discussing the first sentence. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got the answer here, but I want to be rude and jump in with it. You all need to go. But right now I'm getting really, really frustrated because you are wasting my time. That was what happening in my head. But I put on this pretense that, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And what? But I'd already processed it and I was ready to go with an answer, but I had to wait for other people to catch up. 
So sometimes, um, I, I think particularly um, in some HEI contexts, there's a lot of support for students who may be struggling and need extra support. But the student who wants to push and become a high achiever, who may have hypercognitive difficulties, their difficulties are because their hypercognitivity isn't being related to. So where's their learning action plan? It's almost, OK, you do that. Now, Chris, here you are. Here's yours. Tell me about that. And, and then, great, lovely. I can challenge myself because sometimes UDL doesn't effectively challenge some students with hypercognitive abilities because the focus is on supporting processing for people who may not be at that level, if that makes sense. Now, I could have that totally wrong. That's just in my experience so far. So it's almost going back into the olden days when I was at school and you had for math session level one, level two, level three, four, five and six. And if you weren't going to get your GCSE in maths, you were at the bottom set. If you're going to get your an A, B grade, you're in set one. Um, and we're in sets deliberately. But if we're all in together and you wanted to help the people at the lower sets, then the people at the top sets would find it really difficult. Now, that's a very harsh, crude way of defining it. But I think what we've got to bear in mind is our, our teaching sessions. We've got people of all different abilities. And UDL is brilliant for people who may find things a little bit difficult. I think currently the way the UDL applies is people who are high functioning could find it a bit more challenging and that could increase more, more um, signs of anxiety. That's a good point that you've raised there, because I remember we had a, an interaction, didn't we, in a session where um, I remember you spoke to me after the session, didn't you, and sort of said it would have helped actually if you'd had an individual task rather than yeah. a group task, but also like a stretch and challenge type activity. So you finish that one really quickly. Let's challenge you with with something more difficult. And actually, that is really part of a, of a universally designed approach. We should really be stretching and challenging the most able students and that even goes back really to dare I say it um things like Ofsted you know when Ofsted come and inspect uh schools colleges and universities now they want to know how we're stretching and challenging those that that rapidly progress with their work so but it was good um it was good learning for me that day Chris to actually find that out because I just assumed you were being a bit rude yeah uh, I'm really pleased that you came up to me at the end and explained things and it kind of sparked something in my mind because I was very, very early in my sort of UDL journey then because it's a good few years ago, isn't it? And I remember it was, thinking, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so much more about this that I need to unpick and to learn about. So it was a really important sort of learning point for me. So thank you all those years ago for raising that. I want to finish now, Chris, just by getting your top three teaching tips for teaching autistic learners effectively. Right. Um, I, I guess the first one is... If you're going to go down the group work route where people chat in groups, um, allow the person with autism an opportunity um, to feel part of it because they may not they may not have the skills um, or even the social contacts to go. Yeah, who wants to work with me? So what I always send to every student is form your group. That's fine. And then before you do anything, ask the person next to you behind you and in front of you if they're in a group as well and if they're not invite them into yours it's a bit like being in football when you're the last one picked on a football team because no one wants you because i don't think you're very good at football so there could be an autistic student who people think oh they're a bit odd and, and that they ignore them or they've not yet formed a social group so they never get invited to be part of the group and they say no okay i'm i'm all right working on my own are they or is that because they've never felt part of anything? So if you're going to do group work, be sensitive to people who may find that struggle, that you may find that a struggle and do what you can. So no one gets to feel embarrassed and they feel part of something. And if it's going to be a, a regular thing within your teaching, where on Blackboard are there instructions about group work and what it actually means? So do you give, for example, for the potential autistic student an idea that group work actually includes a, B, C and D, so you're aware of it. Um, and I would always say, which I, I do in my sessions, um, if you have, because I hate group work, um, if you do, if you feel it would be difficult, if you don't want to participate in the group work and you'd rather work by yourself, 
And again, this is thinking about people with hypercognitive autism, processing or social skills deficits, etc. Then that's OK. You have that option. But I want everyone else in the group to make sure everyone has had the option to join them. And you can always say, oh, great, I'll join you or I'll sit on my own. So that, that's number one. We need to feed a bit more, be aware of group work. Number two, oral presentations. That can be very, very difficult. So just reflect, do I really need to do an oral presentation? Is this an occupational standard for something like paramedicine, nursing, social work, etc., where I'm assessing you on how you come across to other people? Or is it just because I want to add a bit of variety? And if you just for a bit of a variety, remember what could be entertaining and interesting and exciting for one student can actually be so anxiety-provoking and embarrassing and disabling, it could have a huge knock-on negative effect um, um, to another student. So just consider, are you giving people an option where you, where you can? Are you sensitive to that? And then finally, the biggest bit is people with autis autistic students have abilities as well as disabilities. So how well have you, what have you done to read up about the ability of any one of the neurodiversity? What is it they can do really well? So not just autism, things like ADHD, et cetera. What can they do really well? And how have I embedded that within my curriculum in terms of my teaching and learning style? So actually on day six, there's deliberate activity, which I know people with autism actually are really, really good at. So there's an opportunity for the person with autism to actually succeed and do really well rather than opportunities for everyone else without autism to do really really well so you read up about the neurodiversity condition adhd dyslexia dyspraxia autism what are the positive traits what do you do really well and how have you subtly incorporated that within your curriculum design so everyone gets a chance to shine i think that's a great point on which to finish chris because again it's about that idea isn't it that you know it's the environment that contains the barriers not necessarily the person absolutely yeah. yes and actually if we do enough to to modify the environment where we can then we can support effective learning in all people chris it's been an absolute education i mean i've learned absolutely loads from listening to that i'm sure our listeners are going to learn loads and loads as well um, we're going to get you back aren't we to do another podcast yeah sure on your experiences as an autistic educator so we really really look forward to that but I just want to finish off Chris by saying thank you once again it's been an absolute pleasure that's great thanks Kevin <laughs>